Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books Network. Uh, I'm Keith Kruger, and today we're very fortunate to be talking with Ling Tan, Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of Oregon. Professor Tan's academic interests cover global economic governance, comparative, developmental, and international political economy, including that of the People's Republic of China. Her most recent book, Disaggregating China, Inc., State Strategies in the Liberal Economic Order, was published this year by Cornell University Press and is the 27th book in the Cornell Studies and Political Economy series. Professor Tan, uh, Ye Ling, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us. Keith, thanks so much for having me on the podcast. It's a real pleasure to be here. Your book, with your focus being the political economy of China. Uh, some co- some scholars have have argued for a while that the field of economics should go back to using the term political economy. I, I mention that only because I find your own educational background of interests along those lines: uh, economics, international relations, public administration, international development, and and public policy. I admire your your background work along the political economy and policy lines. Could you talk to us um, about your research interests and the kinds of questions that motivate its agenda? Sure. Um, so as as you point out, um, my own educational background sort of reveals my overarching interest in, in these broad questions of economics, economic development, sort of the inner intersection between domestic and, and international um, dynamics and connecting those to broader public policy questions. I guess I would say that my when, when you boil it down, my fundamental um, intellectual interests are in questions surrounding um, change. So the political economy of development, uh, institutions and institutional change. So why is it that we see some countries setting off on a path of rapid economic change, while others do not. Uh, why, what role do institutions play in driving these uh, different dynamics? And so for someone with, with such, um, such intellectual interest, the case of China is, of course, a, a really fascinating one, not least you know, given its um, overall authoritarian political structure, and so looking at these uh, contrasts between the stability of its authoritarian political structure and then the various um, 
rapid and and really remarkable transformations that have that have taken place on the economic side. Um, and in terms of what motivates me in, in in thinking about research and what questions are interesting to me, um, I've always been intrigued by by cases of um, change and the inherent tensions that that these uh, these cases of change involve. So, for instance, when I was a master's student, um, I was doing research on China's open government inter- information regulations, these uh, transparency regulations. And there I was fascinated by um, why and how a one party communist state that, you know, is, is used to operating in, in opacity, why such a such a system would willingly embrace greater transparency and institute national regulations to improve its disclosure of information. And so I ended up writing a thesis uh, as a master's student on the impact and the effectiveness of China's environmental transparency regulations. So Mm -hmm. thinking about such processes of change and the institutional dynamics. You you had shared with me previously uh, that the uh, Turkish economist uh, Danny Roderick at at Princeton has, has been an influence on your work. Can you can you share a bit about the connection? Sure. Yeah. So Danny Roderick has has been um, quite an important intellectual um, influence of mine. So I came to I came to know and to learn from Danny first as a master's student and then as a doctoral student at at the Harvard Kennedy School. Um, as a master's student, I was in the MPA ID program. So this is the International Development Program at the Kennedy School. Uh, Danny Roderick was one of and and still is currently one of the core faculty members. And in particular, his work and his research on institutions and globalization um, has been really foundational for for how I think about these uh, these issues and the issues of economic development. One class in particular, which I took with him um, and then went on to uh, be a teaching assistant for, was based on his book, uh, which is called The Globalization Paradox. And this book Mm -hmm. explores um, tensions between the border crossing nature of globalization and the very nationally bound politically uh, political processes that manage the consequences of globalization. So again, back to this idea of of, of these tensions, right? Um, What are the tensions between global rules and domestic policy space? So the original idea for the book, uh, Disaggregating China, Inc., was actually, um, in a sense, sparked by uh, Danny Roderick's writing and also writings by others on whether or not the rules of the World Trade Organization have gone too far in terms of restricting the domestic policy space of developing countries. I mean, and I ended up taking a slightly different take on, on the question, but that's sort of the original inspiration for what eventually became this book. Well, great. Yeah, that that that's interesting. As it's a, a good experience, I I would think for you to have been a, a TA for him. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I learned so much taking the class first as as a student, and I think I would say I learned even more being the teaching assistant for the class because you know you're able to sort of take a, a step back um, and digest the material um, in a slight from a slightly different perspective, and then having to 
hold discussion sections and and hold sort of mini mini lectures then with with the students as a teaching assistant forces you to kind of um, ingest and and um, assimilate and think about and reflect upon the material even even more deeply. Yeah, if you if you can teach it, then yes, certainly you know it. So I I was uh, fortunate myself, uh, speaking along those lines last term to to work with a sharp group of uh, regional economics post postgrad students uh, and their research articles. What one example I used to uh, help make the point about the the, the power of uh, clarity in in terms of writing for propelling a line of reasoning forward was your paper uh, with Christina Davis, uh, The Limits of Liberalization, WTO Entry, and uh, Chinese uh, State-Owned Firms. Um, first, I wanted to thank you for making that scholarship available on SSRN. And and second, even though you, you didn't use the paper as a reference in, in, in this book, uh, can you share a bit about how it fits into your argument on the collaborative writing process more generally for those less familiar with its uh, rewards and challenges? Sure. Um, I'd say, first of all, thanks so much for your interest in, in that paper. Uh, that's been a really fun project to work on, and we're still um, kind of working on refining it and improving it. Um, but I welcome very much any feedback that you might have on, on the uh, current version. So that paper with Christina Davis, sure. um, examines the the degree to which uh, entry into the World Trade Organization or the WTO, um, the degree to which WTO entry had a liberalizing effect on the trading behavior of China's state-owned enterprises. And what we find is that there's actually a, um, a bifurcated effect going on uh, where state ownership alone doesn't actually dictate whether or not WTO entry leads to more liberalized trading behavior. And we by, by liberalized trading behavior, we basically mean trading behavior that reflects commercially driven rather than politically driven incentives. So are state-owned firms responding to price signals? And what we find is that SOEs, when, when they're trading in normal goods, non-strategic goods, they actually shifted to a more commercial orientation after WTO entry and started behaving very much like private firms in responding to the shift in prices brought about by tariff cuts. However, when SOEs are trading in strategic goods, so that's the import of goods that belong to industries that have been deemed to be nationally strategic, that's where the liberalizing effects of the WTO are blunted. So it sort of fits into the overall argument um, and connects with uh, my other research in terms of thinking about um, uh, dynamics in, in Chinese politics in slightly more nuanced ways, right? So a lot of people, um, there might be a general impression out there that SOEs behave monolithically because they're all guided by a singular set of incentives and are politically motivated. And what we find is that it's actually not the case. It's very much the combination of state ownership and industrial policy that blunts the liberalizing effect of, of WTO entry rather than state ownership alone. And then in terms of your other question on the collaborative writing process, um, I would say, you know, it's, it's, it's a project that's been really fun and very fruitful. And I'm very, very lucky to have such a supportive and committed co-author. Um, so in terms of the process, I mean, 
it's been very, very collaborative. We, we look over the data and the results together, talk through kind of how to push the analysis further. So one set of discussions usually focus around what are the other tests that we can bring um, that we can that we can implement to test how strong the results are and probe different angles? Can we push um, the analysis to to more fine grained levels at the product level? Uh, should we think about potential sources of bias, things like that? And then in terms of the writing, it's very much a back and forth process. So we've been taking turns to revise the paper. Um, and, and we meet frequently to go through questions, uh, the overall revision strategy. When we were in the earlier stages of data analysis, we would be meeting quite frequently, you know, weekly, because that's sort of the more intense period of, of working on the research. But now that we've shifted to sort of more on the writing and, and questions around framing, the collaboration is, is sort of sometimes happens over email and sometimes uh, less frequently over, over Zoom. But overall, it's some uh, very fruitful, uh, very great experience. You know, sometimes we do go back and forth on very specific phrasings and what exact words to use. And so it can get very micro. But I think those are really, really important conversations to have because we, you need to make sure that we're both on the same page and that the argument that we're making is, is crystal clear. And it's it's really great to have a co-author to bounce these ideas off of. Yeah, no, that's interesting. And uh you really get a feel uh, in listening to, to your explanation, both of how it ties into your thinking on the book, that it really is a creative process in the end, uh, research and writing and share that that kind of thing uh, with, with yeah. students more. It's, generally. it's sort of yeah, a form of, I would say, disciplined creativity, right, <laughs> because you're you're both imposing sort of rigor on the analysis and and disciplining each other but also in the process trying to generate new ideas trying to find the most effective way of of um, putting an argument forward sure getting to the to the book uh disaggregation uh as a as a term we understand uh and and you use it throughout the book including as part of the book's title uh disaggregating china uh, Inc. or Incorporated. Um, how did you come up with uh, the title? It, it, it interests me as part of the writing process and, and like other uh, descriptive terms in economics, it sounds uh, v- vaguely threatening, but seriously, uh, a bit like the term for that matter, uh, urban agglomeration. And I realize there's no connection, um, but not sure if there's a backstory or not related to its use, but I, but I did want to ask. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting question. I think I think I was trying to find a way to, in a few words, uh, how to quickly convey the overall thrust of the book. And I might have first used the, the phrase as, as the title of a talk that I gave um, at Harvard at the Ash Center um, when I just presented one of the book chapters. And I quite liked it. Um, and, and then I, I ended up adopting that phrase for the entire book later on. Sure. I mean, insofar as part of the argument that I'm trying to make is about the importance of understanding that China is not a monolith, right? I I think the title is good in conveying that, um, even though I recognize it is quite a mouthful. Um, (laughs) And it's 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 interesting that the title has evolved. The so this book is is an evolution um, of my doctoral dissertation, and the original title of the dissertation was "State Strategies Under Global Rules." Chinese industrial policy in the WTO era. 
So it's a much more straightforward description of the project. But I think the current book title is more direct in conveying one of the key messages of, of the argument. Yeah, no, I agree. And you use the term strategically uh, throughout the book to make to make those points and to uh, draw those threads together. So, yeah, I think it, I think it works. It, it works well. You, you bookend the work uh, w- with an introduction and a conclusion and the themes of which are really about integration and, and reassessment. Uh, that is, uh, you set the context at the outset uh, with your introductory heading. Uh, which is uh, integrating China into the liberal uh, international order. You then develop the thesis over five chapters uh, before your concluding chapter, uh, which you titled uh, Reassessing China in the WTO Era. You tell a story here based on empirical data, interviews and evaluation that carves out your own research niche within the the literature. But those bookends are are not just uh, window dressing. Um, Can you share um, your macro vision of of China's WTO integration to reassessment story as a place to start to unpack mm, the interesting particulars uh, within the chapters themselves? Uh, Why were the expectations for uh, China's WTO entry so high in the in the first place? Sure. I think I think that we can point to several factors for the high expectations surrounding China's WTO entry. Um, the first would be the historical timing. China's WTO accession took a decade and a half, uh, 15 years to, to be completed. But the period of time where accession negotiations really started making process, where they really started accelerating towards the finish line, was at the end of the 1990s. In the 1990s, we have to remember there was there was quite a broad feeling of optimism around that time, um, around the creation of the WTO in 1995, where um, global uh, multilateral trade rules were upgraded from the predecessor, which was the GATT, the General Agreement on tariffs on trade, um, which really only just focused on trade and goods. So there was this feeling of optimism, not just around the strength of these newly formed global institutions, but also in terms of market economy rules themselves. The 1997-1998 financial crisis brought into question the strength of more state-led models of, of development in the Asian region, um, there were debates around that time or surrounding issues of crony capitalism. And so there were these general sentiments, sentiments of optimism grounded both. So firstly, in the faith in global institutions and global rulemaking, and secondly, in the tenets of market liberalism. And coupled with that, we have to bring in the strength of China's um, protocol of accession to the WTO. So the overall set of commitments that China agreed to as part of its package of entry into this multilateral uh, organization. Um, and these these commitments were really, really sweeping. China promised to um, liberalize the, the, the price setting of most of the goods in its economy, so letting the market rather than the state set prices. Um, it promised to liberalize trading rights uh, to all firms. Prior to that, it was only the state-owned enterprises who had trading licenses that were even allowed to participate in the trading regime. So the private sector was really shut out 
of um, international trade, the domestic private sector. China um, promised to improve the disclosure of information around its economic policy making. It committed to not intervening in uh, market operations, so expanding the role of the market. It committed to um, national treatment, so no, no discrimination between domestic firms and foreign firms. And it promised to really set up stronger institutions for, for market regulation to strengthen the rule of law. Um, in short, these various commitments encapsulated in this protocol of accession that amounted to really a Herculean effort to transform China's economy, right? which at that point in time, even though it had gone through a lot of changes already, remained one that was rooted in state planning and transforming that to one that would operate much more based on market forces. So this really was the most important turning point in the evolution of, of the global trading system since the formation of the WTO itself in 1995. And not only would firms get unprecedented access to, to China's massive domestic market, um, all sorts of you know uh, American firms and, and firms from other trading partners as well, but China would also be undertaking reforms to bring its domestic system more in line with international rules. So the overall expectation was that through this common set of rules, through mutually beneficial economic exchange, WTO entry would be would would be able to peacefully integrate a rising China into the international order. Yeah, and uh, staying with this uh, kind of overall uh, framing approach, you, you mentioned that the, the expectations were basically that they would be economically transformative. Uh, these expectations have basically uh, gone unmet, and and consequently, you describe a new conventional wisdom. C can you explain some of your responses to this new consensus thinking and why the domestic politics within the Chinese state is so important to understand, which in turn links to your your book's two main research questions? Can you can you walk listeners through some of the nuances of your reasoning and your methodology? Sure. Yeah. So one of the most interesting um, dynamics in terms of how these high expectations played out over the past 20 years is is that when we fast forward to today, right, this liberal internationalist promise of, of this um, peaceful integration, right, at least on the economic front, it appears to have been dissipated and, and replaced with this sense of discontent. This this discontent has played out um, in the Trump administration in 2018 when it declared it was a mistake to have allowed China into the WTO. The number of dispute cases at the WTO involving China has just been increasingly quite steadily over time. Um, there have been clashes between the European Union and the United States over China's status as a non-market economy. Right. Both the European Union and the U.S. have shifted their postures to treating China as a strategic competitor. Um, there have been these very high profile sanctions on, on Chinese companies, Huawei and ZTE. So all of these various tensions, uh, which which, of course, have continued into the Biden administration. Right. These various tensions have raised concerns that right now the, the world is headed towards this de decoupling of its two largest economies. So. In contrast to these integrationist expectations, what we have is this new conventional wisdom. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, this new conventional wisdom about China and the global trading system. That, that first, that, there, that WTO has failed to alter China's economic model. Uh, secondly, that China is instead 
seeking to build a state capitalist model, and third, that this model is now being exported globally through um, Chinese SOEs and through state and industrial policy. And what my book does is basically to, to challenge a lot of this conventional wisdom. And it does so firstly by, by pushing beyond this framing about whether or not WTO entry was a success or a failure and, and really to dive into the actual processes and actual changes, the political process of acceding to the WTO and what happened within China's state structures um, in order to answer some deeper questions, right? When, when did liberalization, liberalizing the reforms take place and why? And also to try and dive into puzzles uh, such as the specific, specific timing of when these reforms then slowed down and why. And the book really pushes against categorizing WTO responses into these broad categories, you know, either protection or liberalization. And to push the reader to think about state strategies and, and um, economic policies as far more wide ranging, because that's how policymakers behave in practice, right? In practice, policymakers choose from a really great variety of policy instruments when they think about how to respond to global economic rules. So what I argue instead is that we have to think about how these responses to global rules, responses to WTO entry, how they're mediated by state structure and how they're mediated by politics within the state. And this is important in the case of China, um, because even though China is a one-party state, right, um, its domestic politics are very lively, very messy, very complicated. And so understanding China's WTO experience requires bringing in this question of how WTO entry was received and responded to in different parts of China's really massive and really sprawling state structure. And so in terms of how I um, frame the book, um, I structure it around two main research questions. So the first question would be, what are the range of strategies that um, state actors in China adopted or can adopt to engage with WTO rules? And then secondly, why did some parts of the Chinese state adopt more liberalizing reforms than others in response to WTO entry? Um, and I can elaborate a little bit more about how how I frame these uh, state strategies. Um, sure. So um, the reason the reason I talk about and and start the first question off by uh, by thinking about what what the range of straight state strategies uh, are is it has to do with um, going back historically and considering China's um, overall history of reform and opening, which was very much a non-linear process, right? Um, as much literature has documented, right? Tom Rowski's work, Barry Naughton's work, um, Sebastian Heilman's work, Yun Yun Ang, and so on. You know, China's policy of overall history of reform and opening was very much a non-linear process, right? That involved a lot of policy experimentation and incremental approach to liberalizing the economy. So, uh, China's leaders created spaces for new policies around the planned economy rather than replacing it outright. And so this meant new agencies being created to lead reforms, even while the old agencies remained um, remained in place. So the, re the result of this layered approach to change is that older mindsets and older policies remained in the governing system, even as China's economy took off. And what happened uh, as this um, changed over time is that there was no agreement 
within the Chinese system over this question of how to govern the economy. Um, so in the book, I formalize these disagreements over how to govern the economy in terms of three competing modes of economic governance. And the first is what I call the directive strategy, which essentially is market substituting in nature in the sense that it relies on administrative guidance and the state allocation of resources um, that's very much rooted in China's command economy. So one example we might think of in terms of what's a directive strategy would be the setting of production targets right, for firms, right? So rather than letting the market drive production outcomes, set these production uh, targets directly for the firms up front. And the second is what I call the developmental strategy, which is market shaping in nature rather than market substituting. So this strategy involves the use of state incentives to attract firm activity to one sector over another. So one example here would be a very straightforward example would be the use of tax breaks right, to draw firms, for example, towards high tech sectors. And then the third strategy um, is what I call the regulatory strategy, uh, which is market enhancing in nature. And here, the role of the state really is to set and enforce rules that enhance the, the functioning of the market. So for example, setting standards to enhance interoperability within the economy. And here then the market outcome is not directly um, set by the, the state in terms of production targets, but really depends on firm competition within the bounds of these rules um, that's set by the government. So then we have to think about how these overall competing modes of governance are exacerbated by China's political structure, right? And that's commonly described in terms of, of the Lieberthal and Oxenberg um, framework of fragmented authoritarianism. So then the book brings in how different sub-state actors um, within China's bureaucracy then have the ability and the authority to influence economic policies. And so then circling back to the title of the book, right, Disaggregating China Inc., that means that what we observe in terms of um, China's overall economic development is often the product of this internal political contestation, right, over the mode of economic governance, over state strategies, um, which, which diverges internally within the state, rather than the result of, of some kind of master plan. Yeah, and that uh, and that and that seems to be missing in in so much of the oversimplified uh, rhetoric that you hear about China more generally. But so it's nice to hear your layered approach to looking at the uh, different administrative levels. I guess as a as a way to get into the your, your next chapter actually is um, the theory of state strategies under global rules. It's been pointed out that a theory that, that can't be arrow diagrammed is not a theory. And certainly um, that assertion has been met in your book. Uh, you have some nice, you have a nice uh, a layout there on that. Um, but more importantly, it's the clarity, I think, of your explanations and your line of reasoning that reveals uh, the, the creativity really behind your ex explication of, of China's economic governance. What was the source of of your theoretical inspiration, so to speak? Thanks. Yeah, that was actually um, a very challenging part of the book to write, um, in, in part because the research question that I set out is is quite an ambitious one. So I had to work quite hard here to to pull together and provide a, a simple framework to pull all the various moving pieces together and 
in terms of inspirations, I think in terms of where I draw some of the theoretical insights from, um, I'm really building upon the works of other scholars, scholars such as Peter Evans, scholars such as, as Denny Roderick, whom we've already talked about, and their insights about the role of the state in economic governance, right? That we shouldn't think about state governance um, in terms of high intervention versus low intervention. That is a little bit too two-dimensional. Rather, the question we should be thinking about is how does the state govern the economy, right? A system that has a strong and high-functioning market economy um, requires strong institutions, and that requires a strong state, right? And, and but the the difference here is that the state is focused on um, engaging in market enhancing functions, right, rather than developmental market shaping functions or or directive um, market substituting functions. That's kind of some of the theoretical insights that that I really build on in in connecting these approaches of economic governance um, to this question of China and and the WTO, and then building into that theoretical framework. I really try to keep it simple, right? So I began with the premise that what happens with WTO entry, right? WTO entry really brings about two sets of new conditions that uh, China state actors had to respond to. The first is an economic channel, right? An open competition that was brought about by economic liberalization. And the, the second set of new conditions were these new bureaucratic rules stipulating how the state should govern the economy. And these new conditions really had a, a profound impact, I argue, in, in changing the incentives of the actors within the Chinese state um who are often engaged in, a, in in intense political competition with each other internally so um what the theoretical framework uh proposes broadly is that the ways in which various bureaucratic actors responded to these new conditions depend very broadly on you know the probability of being sanctioned and then the prospects of advancement and then so within this cost benefit framework i then show the sanctions and advancement channels will vary within the Chinese state with depending on where an actor sits to then affect whether or not they, the policy responses that we observe are, are directive or developmental or regulatory. So that's kind of the overarching simplified um, theoretical framework that I use to, to pull everything together. And I like the way you tie in or you uh, you evaluate the literature along the way. I think that's uh, it's insightful and it's helpful. Just adds so much more to, uh, to to the context and the framing of your overall thesis. All, all of this sets up your your book's um, three empirical chapters, uh, starting with chapter three, uh, the hierarchical politics of WTO entry. You examine the impact of the WTO across administrative levels. Can, can you unpack some of your argument here, especially with regard to the importance of differentiating between central and subnational government responses to uh, WTO entry and the implications for those who describe the state's response monolithically, as you uh, talked about earlier? Absolutely. Yeah. So this this chapter focuses on the fact that China has a really highly decentralized state structure, which which has a big impact on the way in which central versus subnational governments within China responded to WTO entry. Uh, so the overall argument is how each each level of um, government responded to WTO entry 
depends firstly on how accountable each authority is to the WTO. And secondly, whether the industrial diversity of each unit meant that um, WTO entry either increased opportunities for export or increased the threat of import competition. So accountability on the one hand and industrial diversity on the other hand. And what I find, first of all, is that the central government responded to the to WTO entry really with a surge of market enhancing, liberalizing policies. And in analyzing the, the prevalence of these liberalizing policies across the, these different levels of government, what I found was that after WTO entry, we see a real stark divergence in terms of how these three levels of government, uh, central government, provincial government, and sub-provincial governments, um, how they responded in, in their policies to WTO entry. The, cent the central government responded with a big increase in uh, market-enhancing content in its policies much more so than provincial governments and much more so than local gov local sub-provincial governments. And much of this liberalizing response was driven by the fact that the central government is very, very accountable, much more accountable to the WTO compared to sub-national governments. So unlike provinces and counties and townships, Beijing plays this role of sovereign representative of China at the WTO. So it has to account for its policies to the other WTO member governments. And in the years immediately following WTO entry, what we saw was the central government really engaging in, in a legislative overhaul to strengthen market institutions in China. Numerous laws were reformed, um, thousands, tens of thousands of technical standards were reviewed, all of this to bring China's um, regulatory and legal framework into conformity with WTO rules. There was a national campaign that was launched to raise WTO awareness in the national bureaucracy and in the public. And all of this was happening at the central level. And the responses at the subnational level, however, was starkly different. Um, what I found was that provincial governments were responding to WTO entry with strengthened um, developmental strategies. Uh, and local governments were strengthening their directive strategies. And this was because the subnational governments, while on the one hand, they're, they're shielded from direct accountability to the WTO, right? So if the city of, of Shenzhen, right, if it enacts a WTO inconsistent policy, it's Shenzhen government leaders are not directly held to account at the WTO, right? It's the central government officials who are held to account. On the other hand, um, the subnational leaders, what they're directly exposed to are the economic effects of WTO-led competition, and that directly affects the, their promotion prospects. So those leaders who found that they could compete to expand their exports, right, um, could be seen issuing industrial policies to spur exports, and a lot of this was having at the happening at the provincial level. Uh, those who were not competitive, a lot of these less competitive uh, entities um, were at the prefectural level, so many of China's smaller prefectures that did not have as rich of an industrial mix, instead resorted to directive policies, right? So they were trying to forcibly restructure their industries. And what they were trying to do was to consolidate and eliminate inefficient firms so that they could um, withstand the in more intense competition coming in um, as China lowered its tariff borders. And stepping back, what we see, therefore, is that there wasn't any kind of monolithic response to WTO entry. While WTO entry triggered these sweeping efforts uh, to institute market enhancing policies, like these were by and large 
centered and driven by the central government, right? Subnational authorities were adopting strategies that were quite contradictory. And so what we ended up with was this internal divergence in China's uh, WTO policy responses. So so the central government then has trouble implementing uh, a coherent WTO policy per se. Yeah, that's right. You also noted uh, you, your argument, um, there was some similarity with research on U.S. constituency size and trade orientation. Can, can you talk a little bit about that, that how you came across that? And Yeah, and, and this is actually quite interesting because obviously China and, and the United States are, are two starkly different political regimes. What they have in common is that both are highly decentralized systems. Um, the United States in, in the form of, of a, a formal federation, right, and, and China is a much more informal quasi-federal system. And what we have in terms of the political, uh, in terms of literature on the political economy of trade in the United States, right, there's this subset of literature about constituency size and free trade orientations, where the idea is that smaller constituencies at local levels of the United States, so <clears throat> districts and so on, tend to be less competitive, they tend to be less diverse, and so they tend to be more protectionist in their overall um, trade outlook. Um, you know, states um, at the state level, right, states are much larger, right? Uh, California could be a country on its own, just like um, Guangdong could be a country on its own, right? They're larger, Shoot. they're more economically diverse, right? And so they tend to be less protectionist in their economic outlook. And at the federal level, right, when you put the whole United States together, what you have is a really rich, economically diverse um, entity. And so the federal outlook tends to be more free trade, the most pro-free trade of all. And this maps onto attitudes within the government. So the argument here is that House of Representatives, right, so, so House members tend to be the most protectionist. Uh, senators tend to be less protectionist, right, because they're representing larger, more diverse uh, constituencies. And then the president with the largest constituency size tends to be the most pro-free trade. And so we see these hierarchical politics kind of playing out within the United States as well. Yeah, no, thanks for uh, for sharing that. Your, your next move is explaining the rise of uh, state capitalism, which is the title of, of your fourth chapter. Uh, can you share your thinking here with listeners as you explain the, the Zhongzhu and the Huwen eras and, and the battle for influence between the industrial policy agencies and the technocratic agencies and, and the implications? Um, yeah, definitely. So this next chapter builds on the previous chapter. The previous chapter really talks about and emphasizes how the central government responded to WTO with this initial surge of market enhancing reform. Well, the next chapter picks up what happens after that, right? This momentum soon lost lost a lot of its steam. And what we saw happening was analysts started to point to this phenomenon of, of guojimintui, right? Or the state advances while the private sector retreats. As, as central policies started to take on these more developmental tones. So then this fourth chapter looks at trying to explain the shift, you know, what explains the, the shift and what explains the timing of the shift in the central government's um, policy trajectories. And here and here are the dominant explanations that one tends to see uh, regarding this question would either be first, it was the 2008 global financial crisis, 
or second, that it was really the preferences of the Hu Jintao Wen Jiabao leadership um, that Hu and Wen had more status preferences than their predecessors. And in the book, I, I, I kind of discuss why both of these explanations tend to be a little bit inadequate, right? Firstly, the turn towards state capitalism, as I document in the book, it actually preceded the financial crisis. Um, secondly, if we if we focus our explanations just on leadership preferences, right, that has a that's problematic because it assumes that China's central bureaucracy is always going to act as faithful agents of the leadership. And that really isn't the case at all times. That relationship between the central bureaucracy and the leader and, and the leadership really shifts over time. Um, instead, my my explanation is that this timing of of the turn towards state capitalism was was essentially a combination of domestic and international factors. Domestically, we have to consider the accountability relations between the party leadership and the central government. Because this affects whether or not the leadership can can faithfully discipline uh, can discipline the bureaucracy and deploy the central government as a faithful agent. Internationally, one has to consider the degree to which reform-minded agencies within Beijing could use WTO rules as external leverage to gain influence over the industrial policy agencies that they often compete with, who were opposed to liberal to, to more liberalization. And so, what I find. And what I talk about in, in the chapter is that during the Jiang Zemin Zhu Rongji era, from around 1998 to around 2002-2003, um, here the leadership was quite effective in disciplining its central bureaucracy, um, in part because their support networks were located outside of Beijing, right, in, in places like Shanghai. So, so leaders could discipline central officials without really hurting members of their network. And what we see in the Jiang and Zhu years were a lot of reforms that were directly opposed to central bureaucratic interests, including WTO entry. Um, at the same time, right, there was a very strong external leverage um, in the initial post-WTO entry years. And in fact, it was this, this external leverage that enabled Zhu Rongji in the first place to push for WTO entry. Uh, Zhu Rongji's own domestic support for liberalization within China was quite weak. China had to commit to a really clear timetable for implementing its, its WTO commitments. So um, after WTO accession, uh, these more ref reform-minded technocratic agencies within China uh, who supported WTO entry could use this timetable as leverage to keep the reform efforts going. As time passed, however, uh, both party state accountability and, and WTO leverage really started to shift. And so the Hu Wen leadership was different from Jiang and Zhu in that their ability to discipline the central bureaucracy was relatively weak. Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabao really had to rely on the state as, as a key political constituency. Um, this was true in particular for, for Wen, who spent a lot of his career kind of rising up through the central bureaucracy. Right, so he really needed to rely on and work with the central bureaucracy, and so the Hu Wen years were were marked by a reliance on the state rather than disciplining the state um, in the Jiang and Zhu years. And then at the same time, in terms of external leverage, right, that started to decline, particularly after 2005, as many of the commitments that China um, uh, signed on to in its accession protocol were met, and so there was a loss of, of momentum within the bureaucracy. And, and what happened was a lot of China's international obligations started to be ignored. And uh, a lot of, at the same time, a lot of resentment was building up within the bureaucracy over these commitments, right? So there was an accumulation over time to opposition to reform. 
And that meant that these industrial policy agencies, right, gained influence while the sort of more technocratic, reform-minded agencies lost ground in relative terms within the central government. And so we started to see around 2005, 2006, a number of important policy changes. So this this was encapsulated in the 11th five-year plan um, that was released in 2006, right, focusing on indigenous innovation, um, focusing on, on reducing China's reliance on foreign technology, um, giving procurement priority to Chinese-made products and so on. And so that's when business sentiments also started to shift uh, towards a more negative uh, set of uh, views about the the state of the business environment and operating environment in China. Yeah, playing to the provinces idea. Um, mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. At, at one point, I, you talk about the, that the rhetoric even gets uh, heated much uh, along the lines, I guess, going back to the interesting comparison with this with the United States uh, in terms of political economy that the the polar there's a bit of polarization that goes on where even uh trade representatives are being uh, castigated as traders yeah right? yeah so China's chief chief negotiator Long Yong Tu at one point you know he's he's sort of <clears throat> accused of having sold out Chinese uh, national interests you know, by by sort of more um, conservative elements with, within the system. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we could draw some interesting parallels to to current day dynamics as well. That's true. You lead into uh, uh, your fifth chapter, which is FDI, this uh, foreign direct investment and the quest for uh, national champions. Hey, can you unpack your line of reasoning here uh, within the context of uh, central and subnational governments, again, operating from their divergent interests, as you've mentioned, but especially in relation to, to FDI, because you've brought up the incentive structures. And, and in this chapter, though, you, you introduce some comparative case studies. Uh, and again, you explain your uh, methodologies quite clearly and um, and in an interesting way. So can you uh, share some of your analysis here uh, with regard to those underlying mechanisms that you describe? Because they really are key to our understanding um, of uh, China's political economy. Absolutely. So this chapter poses this question, right? So it, as uh, now that China's central government right has shifted to this state capitalism um, model, right, does that mean that there was a much greater coherence to industrial policy in, in China's strategic sectors? And this chapter really argues um, against that perspective, right? And and it argues that WTO liberalization actually generated even greater policy conflicts between the central government and and its subnational uh, governments. Um, and this conflict was specifically widened through uh, a foreign direct investment or FDI channel because trade and investment very much go together. Right. So as, as foreign cap as trade was opening up, right, foreign capital was surging into China as well. And this shifted the dynamic um, between the central and, and subnational governments in, in very important ways. And we have to think about what FDI does and what the purpose of FDI is for different types of actors within the Chinese system, right? So both central and subnational governments seek to attract FDI. So that's that's non-controversial. That's straightforward. What's important to understand is that each actually deploys FDI towards a very different political purpose. And so we have to think about, firstly, what the goal of FDI is, right? Whether the 
state actor here is trying to maximize capital and therefore attracting FDI to maximize capital or attracting FDI in order to maximize access to technology. And then secondly, we have to consider who has the contracting authority, right? Because that's going to affect whether or not they try to maximize capital or maximize access to technology. Um, and, and this goes back to the way in which growth is a very political target in, in China and in other countries, but especially in China. And it serves different political purposes for different state actors. The central the central state here seeks economic growth for, for regime promotion purposes. And so when it thinks about WTO entry, it's thinking about how WTO entry represents an opportunity to strengthen the Chinese regime because it enhances China's access to foreign technology. If we go down to subnational governments, right, subnational leaders, they're actually they're seeking economic growth for rank promotion purposes because their primary interest is to advance up the hierarchical levels of the CCP. And so for them, WTO entry really represents more of an opportunity for political advancement, right, by drawing in foreign capital to spur growth in their jurisdiction in as short a time as possible. And so um, I explore these dynamics um, in two comparative case studies, looking at the automotive industry and semiconductor industries. In the automotive industry, we had a case where FDI was very much more relatively more centralized, so contracting authorities stayed with the central government quite consistently over the years. We have foreign investment uh, controlled by joint venture rules pretty much since the 1980s. The semiconductor sector, right, in contrast, we saw contracting authorities shift much more over the years. So FDI policy had a lot more swings. Um, initially, FDI policy for the two two sectors looked very very much similar. So we also had joint venture rules in the semiconductor industry. In the in the 2000s, a new policy was issued that greatly decentralized FDI authority down to the localities for semiconductors, and the joint venture rule was lifted. And so that liberalization led to a big surge in foreign investment into China. However, this FDI was very much largely focused on assembly and testing. It had very little R&D content, and that very much served the short term, this output maximizing rank promotion goal of many subnational governments. But it did not serve the technology upgrading regime promotion goals of the central government. And so what we had is this dynamic where foreign uh, Chinese firms that were located in places with a very strong FDI presence actually found it quite difficult to break into these foreign enclaves. And actually those places tended to have weaker innovation. And so the central government, what happened then in the 2010s or so on, was the central government responded with a reassertion of central control and setting up an, a central investment fund, setting up new policies to really try and support the Chinese semiconductor firms. And foreign firms found that they increasingly needed to partner with Chinese firms in order to access state resources, effectively swinging back to this joint venture model of the 1980s. And so when we think about the semiconductor case, what we see is how 
globalization and the liberalization of FDI has actually weakened rather than than strengthened Chinese industrial policy because subnational governments were then able to directly access foreign capital and that gave them this a whole set of resources to bypass central policies that emphasize these qualitative technology upgrading regime promotion purposes and so this tension these tensions that have really complicated the central government's relationship with its subnational units for a very long time were supercharged by globalization and so Beijing's high-tech ambitions really have been hobbled by the subnational government's quantitative approach rather than qualitative approach to thinking about economic growth and to pursuing economic growth. I, I want to ask you about the lead-in to that chapter also uh, because because you open with mention of a Chinese government report that listeners may be familiar with, um, Made in China 2025, uh, it focused on promoting technological innovation, intelligent manufacturing, and and just um, advanced industry capabilities. The point you were making, though, uh, was that it had become emblematic of U.S. trepidation, as noted by some language in a U.S. Senate report, which referred to it uh, while describing Chinese policy as breaking the rules and changing the terms of international economic competition. Uh, so I wanted to ask you, do you think, as some have argued here, that uh, China has not fulfilled their WTO entry promises, for example, such as um, uh, letting markets determine prices rather than the state or, or strengthening the rule of law in terms of economic governance? And for, for that matter, hey, should any of this uh, have a direct bearing on China's future acceptance into CPTT, uh, CPTPP, that comprehensive and progressive extension to the to the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which you which you mentioned, and and maybe takes us a little bit afield here, but but does seem related. I mean, to what your overall argument is about. Absolutely, yeah, it's it's very much related, and and is definitely um, uh, a question that we we should all be thinking about for for people who are in, interested in as you and I are in in you know. Um, uh, economic and, and trade issues. I mean, I would say the, I would say overall, the the degree to which market forces have penetrated the Chinese economy is much greater today than the counterfactual um, if China had not joined the WTO at all. And if we think about China's compliance with WTO rules, it's certainly not been perfect, um, but that doesn't make it too unusual compared to other countries. It's certainly not the case either that the, that the government has broken all of its promises. China's record of compliance with with dispute panel rulings has also been good overall. When when the panel when panels have ruled that certain policies are are WTO inconsistent, the Chinese government has by and large made the necessary changes to bring um, the policies back into consistency. And of course, this isn't this isn't. This is not to say that there has not, as the book describes, that, that there has been major shifts in China's overall governance trajectory. But I would say that the challenges facing China and the WTO does not only boil down to dynamics within China. I think we also have to consider the stagnation of the negotiating agenda at the WTO itself. So some of the challenges that the multilateral institution has faced over the past decade or so in terms of 
updating um, its rules to to um, keep up with changes in the international economy and the dragging on and the eventual failure of the Doha round, um, the Doha development round of trade negotiations. So there has been no new round of liberalization at the WTO. In the meantime, right, while WTO um, negotiations have stagnated, right, in the meantime, the Chinese economy has grown. It's transformed by leaps and bounds. The global economy itself has transformed. All new technologies, this digital trade and e-commerce, right? All of these remain ungoverned as far as multilateral rules are concerned. So there's this huge gap there that we need to consider that's driving a lot of current tensions when we think about the disappointments around China and the WTO and China's domestic industrial policies and so on. Which then brings us to the, the question that you rightly raise about China's application to join the CPTPP, right? Because the CPTPP um, purports to have a stronger set of rules around um, SOEs, around intellectual property and so on. So how can we think about um, China's application to join the TPP? Um, and, and here I, I would highlight two different aspects. Um, the first is how the application does make sense from China's political and economic interests. And the other aspect would be some of the more geopolitical challenges that China is going to face in its application. In terms of the first aspect, I think membership in this regional trade agreement makes sense in the sense that China's been very clear, the Chinese government's been very clear that it's not turning away from globalization at all. Right. I mean, it's spectacular growth has been fueled by globalization It's going to continue to engage with the global economy. It signed the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, the RCEP. It signed an investment agreement with the EU. It's continuing to push on the Belt and Road Initiative. So China's dual circulation strategy, right, that external circulation, right, in terms of global globalization is still very much alive and well. And CPTPP fits into that external engagement strategy. Um, politically, I think there's a degree to which if China succeeded in joining the CPTPP, it would further enhance its economic position in the Asian region. There are, obvious, there are these obvious geopolitical spillovers that, that would be positive for, for China if it were to succeed. The CPTPP chapters on things like SOEs, on e-commerce and IP protection, as they stand, right, they're actually they're challenging, but they're not insurmountable for China. Um, in the sense that each of these existing chapters, many of the chapters provide important exceptions that would allow some flexibility for China to still join um, and, and not really face strong um, contradictions. So there are exceptions in the chapter on data flows um, that uh, allow governments to place restrictions when there is a quote unquote legitimate public policy objective, right? what that is, is, is left undefined. There's a general national security exception. Some of the rules on SOEs um, very much mirror the existing rules that China signed on to in its accession protocol for SOEs. So the gap really isn't that big. The question is whether or not members are going to negotiate even more stringent commitments from China as a condition for entry into the CPTPP. So those are all the sort of technical details. I think the more challenging aspects really comes from the geopolitical angle because um, China's trade relations with some of the most important CPTPP countries have become really heavily politicized, right? Canada, Australia, 
And so when your trade relations are, are, are as strained as they are at the moment, right, how do you get back to normal trade engagement on commercial terms? There's a really big question there. I think Taiwan's application um, to the CPTPP adds another political layer to the to the whole issue. So I think that's where the story of, of WTO really, really diverges here, right? These geopolitical questions really hang over the CPTPP question. Interesting. And building a bit from uh, the, your mention of the trade conflict, there there's a, the ongoing trade conflict between the two largest economies in the world have have given these fears really a, a, a tangible feel as evidenced by the bipartisan political consensus in, in both the House and Senate uh, in the U.S. And, and across both Trump and Biden administrations. Given your background uh, and your research focus, hey, what is it about our thinking on trade policy that you think needs to be adjusted, if if anything? And, and how much of all this is uh, somewhat wrongheaded in terms of things like the U.S. labor market, or even worse, that that it's uh, ideologically driven. That's a really an important question, um, and I think there's a lot to reflect on here. Um, as you say, there's been quite a lot of continuity between the Trump and Biden administrations. Uh, firstly, in terms of the Phase One deal, right? So that was negotiated under Trump, um, and is being upheld under Biden. So. On one level, you know, in terms of political incentives, I can absolutely understand why the United States under a democratic administration would not necessarily just voluntarily roll back any of the Trump era tariffs or any of their agreements, right? Because you would be giving up otherwise useful leverage. But the issue with the phase one deal is that it cuts against previous U.S. government rhetoric about conducting globalization according to multilateral rules. Instead, the phase one deal is very much about moving towards a deals-based globalization rather than a rules-based globalization. So it's really unfortunate that the Biden administration is sticking to the enforcement of the phase one deal commitments because that lends support to the idea that we're moving towards deal-based globalization. And that has this really unfortunate effect of undermining one of the things that the U.S. has called on China to do, which is to abide by the rules of the international order. So there's a really important contradiction there. And that's that's even I think I think I think coupled with that problem is is U.S. domestic industrial policy as well. Right. The other tension is the U.S.'s call for China to eliminate the use of its subsidies and industrial policies because that skews the playing field in in favor of China. But at the same time, the U.S. and, and not just the U.S., also Europe, right? There are all these countries are now, um, countries within Europe are pushing their own industrial policies, renewable energy and so on. So I think both what the U.S. is doing with the phase one deal and with its own domestic industrial policy creates tensions for broader uh, external negotiations um, with China in terms of what China is doing. More broadly, I would say there is a problematic, the, the one core problem that we need to think about is the overall framing of U.S.-China trade relations as having been harmful to America, right? This, this rhetoric that singles out steel and agriculture and semiconductors framing China's growth as having come at the expense of growth in the United States, I think overlooks the myriad ways in which the United States and American companies have for many years benefited from economic cooperation with China. 
I think it's important not to take a zero-sum view of this trading relationship. The gains on the Chinese side do not automatically equate to a loss for the United States. And here, if we draw on economic literature and what we've learned from trade economics, right, we, we've known for a very long time that trade opening with any country involves economic dislocation. It involves job loss. That's not a new insight. What we need to do is to, is to contextualize these job losses resulting from trade with China within the overall normal churn of the economy and within the overall broader transformation of the U.S. economy from one based on manufacturing to one based much more on services and innovation. And job losses that are resulting from this transformation, job losses that are resulting from technological pro progress and gains in productivity. So if you take China out of the picture, U.S. manufacturing jobs would still be a lot smaller today due to technological progress, due to productivity gains. The crucial question we need to think about is how to design domestic policy to be able to cushion these dislocations. Good trade policy requires strong domestic policy. The two go hand in hand. Um, and I think we cannot look, overlook the domestic side of the equation and we cannot overlook the responsibility of the U.S. government in building a resilient safety net at home. Right. And so no economist, no trade theory pretends that there is no dislocation from trade. I think we know, need to go back to the insights of the political scientist John Ruggie, who's written a lot about embedded liberalism. Right. So how do we embed economic liberalism within a strong um, welfare state at home? How does um, the question that the U.S. policy should be interrogating is how to design trade policy in tandem with strong domestic policy? To take into account these dislocations that are bound to happen, um, how do we design domestic policies to provide social safety nets, to provide job, job opportunities, and so on? So I think we need to reorient the debate into, in, in that direction. And thanks for, for sharing uh, your, th your thoughts on that. Um, this uh, almost knee-jerk reaction always to look for scapegoats. And, and again, uh, I, I'm not... Uh, trying to uh, oversimplify that, it's just it's almost like a, whether it's at the individual level or at uh, any any uh, larger macro level, it just seems like a, a natural reaction to to, uh, to to blame some 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 other entity. And and maybe we've uh, you've probably covered a, a, a bit of this and and quite a bit of it actually. And and I, what I wanted to uh, mention, hey, your concluding chapter, that other bookend, really ties all the strands of your theory and argument together. And as a, as a way of wrapping up, I, w I was um, thinking I wanted you to expand on, on something you wrote because it ties back to the title. And, and you, you had a sentence in there that reads, uh, this disaggregation sheds light on why various assessments of the impact of WTO entry on Chinese economic policy seem to be so at odds with one another. Can you share some of your thinking here in relation to your review of the literature, which you evaluate so well? And and uh, th thanks for the the uh, John uh, Ruggie uh, reference there. Um, and I'm not sure if you've covered a, a lot of this already, so maybe may maybe not totally fair. Yeah, absolutely. I I think if we step back and look at existing literature, one puzzle right is why some so many of the conclusions seem to con contradict each other. And so one of the dynamics that, that I, I dive into in the book is that 
each author, each study tends to look at one aspect of the Chinese system and then draw broader conclusions from that. And it's really hard analytically because China is so large and so sprawling to be able to piece all of the pieces together, right? So we have some studies out there that look at China's behavior at the international level and find, hey, look, China is very much a status quo country. It's abiding by the rules. It's playing um, um, a positive role, right? Those studies tend to draw their generalizations by studying um, the actions of the Ministry of Commerce, right? And then we have another set of scholars who might be looking at industrial policy. And from those studies, you might draw the conclusion that, you know, there's um, this very strong state capitalism, that China's really doubling down on industrial policy. And those studies tend to focus on a totally different agency, um, right, which might be the, the NDRC, the National Development and Reform Commission, or the MIIT, the Ministry for uh, Information and uh, Industry and Information Technology. So they're looking at different ministries and drawing different conclusions. Um, and this brings me back to, to a really great article um, written by one of my advisors, Tony Sage, um, called The Blind Man and, and the Elephant, right? So it's a fairly well-known analogy. You've got three blind men. They're each feeling a different part of the elephant and they are drawing different conclusions, right? The one blind man hold, is feeling the trunk and saying, oh, this is a tree. And a, another blind man is is uh, holding the tail and saying, oh, it's a snake, right? N none of them can step back and right. or, or regain their eyesight to say, well, this is actually an elephant, right? And so the the challenge of studying China is is very similar to the the problem of of the blind men and 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 the elephant here. But I think when we disaggregate and kind of understand that there are different moving pieces within China's system, right? Um, then we can understand why there seem to be so many contradictory assessments out there. Each is driven yeah. by a different actor within the system. Sure. Yeah. Good answer to that. And uh, nice reference to the uh, blind men and, and the elephant. Quite apt. And and uh, so it's nice to read uh, your book and, and do recommend uh, listeners get into Professor Tan's uh, book on this uh, because uh, it's insightful in a, in a number of ways in terms of how it deals with um, looking at these different dimensions uh, from the, you know, the administrative level to how uh, the central state gets handled and, and how hand and or thwarted and, and then all the way down to uh, across the industries themselves uh, uh, with the uh, with the case studies. And, and again, you've you uh, work the, the review of the literature and, and the studies um, uh, throughout. I wanted to ask you a little bit. You, you referenced uh, Susan Shirk's 1993, that political logic of economic reform in China. Uh, she had argued um, that the success of market reforms uh, were due more to uh, bottom up experimentation and decentralized decision making uh, rather than a strong centralized leadership. And centralization, decentralization tension seems important to your analysis as well, obviously. And how central is this theme to, do you think, to a more nuanced understanding of China's political economy? I think it's it's hugely important. And this is this is a dynamic, right? Centralization, decentralization, or in, in the literature, it's sometimes referred to as the feng and shou dynamic, right? This is a very long-standing um, dynamic within the Chinese system. And I would say, you know, 
there might be some skepticism today under the Xi Jinping administration as to whether or not Fang and Shou uh, matters anymore, right? Some might argue, some skeptic, some skeptics might argue, isn't it all about centralization? Isn't it all about Shou, right? Um, and I would, I would argue, and I would, I would urge uh, people not to throw away the many decades of great scholarship that have been written about centralization and decentralization, because many of the insights still apply, even in the Xi Jinping era of centralization. Um, I have an article that I wrote with uh, Kyle Jaros, who's at the University of Notre Dame. Uh, it's published in the China Journal, where we talk about the importance of Chinese provinces, even in the Xi Jinping era of centralization. And what right. we argue there is that we shouldn't think about power as flowing in a zero-sum fashion within China, right? So more power at the central level does not automatically equate with less power um, subnationally, and what we argue is that, in fact, right, the centralization has empowered many Chinese provinces, and we look at how the empowerment works and how Chinese provinces are playing really important roles as gatekeepers of resources across a number of different issue areas in industrial policy, in urban policy, and in external um, economic policy in terms of the Belt and Road. But thinking even more historically, right, Centralization, in a sense, has been happening since the 1990s, right? It's not new. What's new is the the nature of the centralization, right? Zhu Rongji uh, and Jiang Zemin, right? They were trying to discipline the state, so they were strengthening macro controls in the in the 1990s. Um, who and when were expanding state control, right? And and expanding the role of of uh, central industrial policy uh, and pol policy agencies. And Xi Jinping is expanding the role of the party. So, but in all of these different flows of centralization, subnational actors continue to play a really important role in terms of shaping facts on the ground. Right? They continue to have substantial, important discretion, especially in issues such as economic policy. So, understanding these center-local dynamics. I think is absolutely key to understanding China's political economy, even as China becomes more globalized, or especially as China becomes more globalized. Great, thanks for uh, for sharing that insight. And as far as um, book recommendations for people that that are interested in the kind of things that that you study, what are some kind of foundational reads that that you would direct people to? Sure. I mean, in terms of books and texts that have been really influential to me, I think let me focus just on political economy writ large because sure. I found it I found it very useful to look at literature that is not specific to China and then try to apply and draw connections um, and adapt it to the China case. So nice. that's one reason. The other reason is that if I started talking about great books in the political economy of China, I couldn't stop at two, right? It would be like a whole list. <laughs> sure. um, so so in terms of broader political economy, we've already talked about Danny Roderick and, and his really fantastic book, The Globalization Paradox. Um, I would throw in there the book, a, a slightly older book by Peter Evans called Embedded Autonomy, right? That goes into industrial policy and the different ways in which the, the state can engage with economic governance, right? The state uh, playing different roles. And I think that's a brilliantly written book and super creative. And then I think the third book I would highlight actually compares um, the United States and Europe. It's an edited volume by Peter Hall and, and David Soskis 
So Peter Hall was um, the uh, chair of my dissertation committee, and he's been hugely influential in, in shaping the way I think about political economy, the way I think about institutions. Um, and his edited volume with um, David Soskis is called Varieties of Capitalism. Right? It's, it's a hugely influential um, piece of work and has had a big impact on me as well. And I would recommend anyone to take a look at it. That's great. Uh, thanks for those. What are you working on these days? Yeah, so I'm working on a number of different projects, all with co-authors, and so it's all been quite fun. Um, super lucky to have really great co-authors. Um, one of the projects I'm working on right now is is looking at um, Chinese responses to instances of external coercion. So looking at responses to the the current um, trade war, technology restrictions, but also going back to earlier historical periods of um, external shocks, such as the Edward Snowden revelations. So looking at how the Chinese system was, was responding to these different external events. That's one really fun project. Another project I'm, I'm working on uh, looks at um, domestic public opinion within China. So the degree to which uh, China's external um, economic expansion is impacting um, domestic opinion at home. And look forward to uh, uh, to reading some of that down the road. Thanks again, uh, Ye Ling, for for taking the time. I know you're you're busy, and it's it's nice that you uh, spent so much time with us and and shared so many interesting insights. I just say this that. Uh, really highly recommend uh, Ye Ling Tan's Disaggregating China Inc. State Strategies in the Liberal Economic Order, published in 2021 by Cornell University Press, the 27th book in the Cornell Studies in Political Economy series. Uh, thanks again, Ye Ling. Thanks so much, Keith. This has been um, really fun. I, I really want to thank you for taking the time um, and for such a such a great conversation. I've really enjoyed it. It's been a real honor. Thank, thanks again.